Hi, everyone. The first reading is from Luke chapter 12. Someone in the crowd said to him, Teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. Jesus replied, Man, who appointed me a judge or an arbiter between you? Then he said to them, Watch out. Be on your guard against all kinds of greed. Life does not consist in an abundance of possessions. And he told them this parable. The ground of a certain rich man yielded an abundant harvest. He thought to himself, what shall I do? I have no place to store my crops. Then he said, this is what I'll do. I'll tear down my barns and build bigger ones. And there I will store my surplus grain. And I'll say to myself, you have plenty of grain laid up for many years. Take life easy, eat, drink, and be merry. But God said to him, you fool, this very night your life will be demanded from you. Then who will get what you have prepared for yourself? This is how it will be with whoever stores up things for themselves, but is not rich towards God. Then Jesus said to his disciples, Therefore I tell you, do not worry about your life, what you will eat, or about your body, what you will wear. For life is more than food, and the body more than clothes. Consider the ravens. They do not sow or reap. They have no storeroom or barn. Yet God feeds them. And how much more valuable you are than birds. Who of you be worrying, be worrying can add a single hour to your life? Since you cannot do this very little thing, why do you worry about the rest? Consider how the wildflowers grow. They do not labour or spin. Yet I tell you, not even Solomon in all his splendour was dressed like one of these. If that is how God clothes the grass of the field, which is here today and tomorrow is thrown into the fire, how much more will he clothe you you of little faith. And do not set your heart on what you will eat or drink. Do not worry about it. For the pagan world runs after all such things, and your Father knows that you need them. But seek his kingdom, and these things will be given to you as well. The second reading is from James chapter 4. What causes fights and quarrels among you? Don't they come from your desires that battle within you? You desire but do not have, so you kill. You covet, but you cannot get what you want, so you quarrel and fight. You do not have because you do not ask God. When you ask, you do not receive, because you ask with the wrong motives, that you may spend what you get on your pleasures. You adulterous people, don't you know that friendship with the world means enmity against God? Therefore, anyone who chooses to be a friend of the world becomes an enemy of God. Or do you think Scripture says without reason that he jealously longs for the spirit he has caused to dwell in us? But he gives us more grace. That is why Scripture says, God opposed the proud, but shows favour to the humble. Submit yourselves, then, to God. 
Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Come near to God, and he will come near to you. Wash your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Grieve, mourn, and wail. Change your laughter to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will lift you up. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks, Tiffany. Okay, let's explore, uh, especially the James passage together. You ready to do this? James is. That's good news. Okay, question then, uh, to begin our exploration of this text. Question, what causes fights and quarrels among you? <laughs> it's a great question, isn't it? It's not my question, as you know. It's the opening question of our text this evening from the Bible. It's James chapter 4, verse 1. It's on page 10. James poses the question, what causes... What's the cause of the fights? What's the cause of the quarrels among you? I think it's a great question because it rises above the actual fight. It rises above the actual quarrel. It's a meta question. You know, it goes beyond the content of the fight or the quarrel. Where did the skirmish truly begin? You know, what were its true origins? Why do we fight this way? What causes the fights? I take it that if I can answer the question in James 4 verse 1, then I might be able to do conflict resolution a whole lot better. Might be able to find peace. I think it's a sensational question because it gets below the surface. The question gets into my heart. You know, where does all that anger come from? Why do I feel this way? You know, why do I occasionally feel like a volcano about to explode? You know, where does all the chess moves to win, fight. Where does it come from? Because I want peace, I want an answer to the question posed in chapter 4, verse 1. I think the context of chapter 4, verse 1 is a good old-fashioned church fight. Who doesn't love church politics? Uh, I take it there were quarrels within the communities to which James was responsible for and wrote. So if I can put it this way, in the, the context, it's, it's more of a community group sort of angst rather than here, husband and wife angst or colleagues at work angst. But you'll see, it'll have implications for all those things, all fights, all quarrels, and I take it not only church arguments but also husbands and wives, what causes the fights and quarrels among you? You know, all those difficult relationships uh, at work. Or let's move it on to a national level, the cultural wars, which everybody's widely recognising. You know, why so much angst in our society? And everyone's got their reasons for that. You know, you could even ask you, what causes international skirmishes or fights or wars? Because the initial and easy answer is to blame others. What causes fights and quarrels among you? The other guy. She did. He did. They did. That nation did. That's the default position. What causes fights and quarrels among you? What they did to me is what causes the fight and the quarrel. But James doesn't answer that way. He answers with a rhetorical question. He says, don't they, when you think about it, 
Don't they come from the desires that battle within you? Now, right there, it's a fascinating question. It subverts the blame others approach. It's undermined. should be said, of course, it might be someone else's fault. Don't get me wrong. It truly might be. You could read a passage like this. I could imagine a person experiencing domestic violence from a par- partner who's, what causes the fights and quarrels and then don't they come from the desires that battle within you and then you blame yourself again for something you shouldn't be blaming yourself for, you see. Clearly, um, you know, a text like this doesn't answer every question about every fight and every quarrel. It may well be their fault. That's possible. Conflict is complex. Um, you know, and a text like this is not meant to paper over the complexities of genuine conflict. What it does do, though, is challenge the default heart position that I'm right in every fight. That's what it does. It challenges the default human heart position that I'm right. That's why we're still fighting. That's why we're still quarreling and not writing a card now begging for forgiveness. Because, you know, we fight here quite simply because we both believe we're right in the right. I picked up this book. I read about Chernobyl on the week, on the holidays. Cheery reading. My wife calls it Chernobyl. But I picked up this book and I'm, you know, getting into it. And it's called The Righteous Mind by a moral psychologist called Jonathan Haidt, who I think is touring Australia at the moment, if you get the Australian. Uh, there's several articles about him on the weekend. This book is called The Righteous Mind, and I know enough to be able to say what he contends. Namely, that, you know, we go through life thinking deep down we're right and other people are wrong. Um, spiritually, politically, you can see it all over social media and his attempt as a psychologist is to try to understand you know, why that's the case and what are the causes for it and he addresses religious belief which is really interesting but you know what causes fights and quarrels among us he's got a particular answer to that question and I'm really enjoying that but James invites this new possibility quite simply that the fights and quarrels arise from desires that rage within you now, the word for desires in, uh, in uh, chapter one, uh, 4, verse 1, is the, the Greek word hedonom, where we get our word hedonism or hedonism, uh, which is about pleasure-seeking. These fights and quarrels arise from the pleasures, the lusts, the have-tos, the things you have to have. The fights and quarrels come because you want something real bad, and you're going to Knock out people who get out in your way to, 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 to get these things. You have what James calls desires that rage within. In other words, if you're looking for a way through a conflict, then maybe the first port of call is your own heart. The heart is the true battleground for many, not all, skirmishes, human skirmishes. He goes on in verse 2. You desire, you want something, but you do not have. You want something, you don't get it. In the King James Version, ye lust and have not. That's the frustration, right? You want it so badly, not being given to you. Not, so you've got to go and get it, you see. As the old prayer book says in the prayer of confession, we have followed 
we have followed too much the devices and desires of our own hearts. This idea of the desires that rage within you is worth meditating on for the sake of peace in our church and in your home and in your work and in your heart. Bishop Tom Wright says this, this may well mean a time of serious self-examination. Where are all these impulses coming from, he writes, these desires that are pulling me, pulling me away from the God who truly longs to be my friend. He has the spirit of jealousy within. He wants you badly, and yet you keep running after these desires that rage within you. So I offer two points today by way of reflection on these verses in order that you might find peace in the church, in the home, in your work, and in your hearts. Two points, and they're on page 11 of your orders, of your zines. Firstly, an exploration into desires that rage from James, and secondly, the alternative to desires that rage. An exploration and an alternative. I'm going to talk about how to make the transition, which comes in verse 6 with this beautiful six words, but he gives us more grace. We'll come to that. Firstly, an exploration into desires that rage. Look at chapter 4, verse 2. You desire, but you do not have. You desire, but you do not have. So he writes, you kill. Some of you are thinking, I've not stopped any hearts. I'm safe. I don't think that's what, I mean, maybe somebody is killing somebody then. I mean, the world is rougher in different parts of the world. But perhaps the first thing to say is that these desires that we have that rage within us, they lead to frustration. You want something, you don't get it. And so what you do is you seek to control your environment. Which may be what it means for us to kill. You desire, but you don't have, so you control. You'll do what needs to be done to get what you want. So it leads to frustration. Secondly, it leads to conflict. You covet but you cannot get what you want, restates the idea of not getting the thing that you really badly want. So, James writes, you quarrel and fight. Next verse, he's got an antidote. We'll come to that. I wonder if it could be said that every person who has ever killed or controlled has had desires that rage within. You know, would Adolf Hitler have believed deep down that Liebenstrom was a good idea for the German people if inside he didn't have this desire that raised within him. Look what damage such a desire can wrought. So we say as Christians, desire is a beautiful and fascinating subject. And there are psychologists in the room today, they get it more than I do. I have a reflection on scripture, I'm not a psychologist. But reflecting on scripture, you could say, we all have desires, we are a bundle of them. Some of them seem reasonable. I take it they are. Long life, um, good health, security, safety of my children, if God gives them to me, seem very reasonable desires. Thumbs up. Some desires are frowned upon. I have to have more and more money, whatever, power. I have to have more alcohol, download more pornography, 
you know, I have to have an ostentatious house. Um, I don't know. I need to look like I'm 20 when I'm actually 60, and I'll do everything to control that, um, that experience. At that point, we say, look, you know, there's, there's desires, and there's, there's desires, and we want to sort of parse them. Christians, it should be said, are fans of desire. We believe God has planted desires within us. Desire is a gift from God. So we're not like certain Eastern religions or mystics where desire is the problem. I've got to remove desires because if I remove my desire, then I'll control my environment less and if I lose something, I won't be upset because I didn't need it anyway. I'll suffer less the more I remove desire from my life. The desire, they say, that causes the suffering. Just rid yourself of it. We're not, we're not, we don't believe in that. <laughs> we, we, we creatured people. But on the other side, we're not hedonists at the same time where my goal in life is to figure out what I want and then set about getting it at all, some cost, filling up my soul with more things, my body with more things. We neither rid ourselves of desire nor fill ourselves up with desire. No, Christians believe that God planted desires within us and that the, how shall I put it, the fulfillment of that desire is a gift that comes from above, which is why he's going to say pray, but I get ahead of myself. It's a gift that comes from above rather than an attempt to gain or control my environment. Here's a couple of desires that God planted within us. The desire for home and a sense of belonging, work and the sense of achievement, um, to be forgiven, to know and to be known, to love and be loved in this very real world created by a good God. These are things that God planted within us. Another example, we believe strongly, despite what people say in the papers and perhaps despite what medieval Christianity might or might not have said, we believe that sexual desire is a gift. Yay, sexual desire, gift from God. Not to be rejected, but rather channeled as God designed us. For example, sex within covenant. But the desire itself, thumbs up. Many of us have a desire to raise a family in safety, to have employment that we can enjoy, to have some friends around us, to know God and enjoy Him forever. These are desires and they're good and they are right. And when you lose one or more of these things, and I've got to say, even as we get older, we tend to feel a weight of loss um, of the things that we thought, thought were a sort of birthright because we were young, but they get stripped from us, health being one of them. You start to feel the loss. And you wish things could be different. You hope things might change. Those sorts of things, those good desires, aren't what James is talking about when he talks about the desires that rage within you. He's talking about the concept of desire ruling you. Desires, even the good ones, governing your behaviour. When you start to have conflict because someone is in your way, Go and get it. You kill and cover it, you see. Where the inner desire becomes the basis on which you make decisions. 
And it inevitably ends up leading to being curved in on self rather than curved outwards to others in service or upwards to God in worship. It's where the thought of losing the thing you desperately want doesn't just hurt you because desires are good, but rather it destroys you because the desire is in fact an idol and it just makes you downright angry. You have desire, but you do not have, and so you kill and covet and control. The result of these kinds of desires is frustration, frustration that makes you scramble and control and manipulate those that you know. It leads to fights and to quarrels, and I believe in the end a sort of violence to others who are made in the image of God. James goes a bit further and he says you end up being friends with the world in verses 4 and 5. In other words, the narrative you have is no longer from God and the kingdom of God, which is about um, trusting God, but it's about having, having to have. This is the friendship with the world. In verse 4, you adulterous people, classic prophet language, don't you know that friendship with the world means enmity against God? Therefore, anyone who chooses to be a friend of the world becomes an enemy of God. Classic, stark James terms. What does it mean? The world in the New Testament is sometimes code for, but not always code for, opposition towards God. God is opposed to, to man uh, being in the flesh, the mass of humanity indifferent to the cause of God who created us in the first place. And so we give up on God, pursue our own dreams with its material mindset, the stuff amassed or the spiritual journey as I direct it, self-directed spiritual journeys, rather than saying, submitting or yielding to God and his will, and you end up being amorous with the world, you end up flirting with the world. Let me read you verse 4 by changing the word friends with the world to the, to the word being amorous with or even flirting with. Listen to this. Don't you know that being amorous with the world is hatred? Don't you know that flirting with the world is hatred towards God? Anyone who chooses to flirt with the world becomes an enemy of God. And a whole new radical mind is being offered by James and the writers of all the New Testament. Truth about the world, we need to love the world and engage in this world. It's created by God. He loves it. He'll have it back. That's what the resurrection is all about. And so we need to be, as Jesus said so brilliantly, in the world, but not of the world. In the world, but not of the world. <laughs> this world can be beautiful. We need to be in the world. Present in the suffering, but not of the world. We belong to another. We belong to God. That's the point of that story in Luke chapter 12. You know, some dude comes up to Jesus and says, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. I need half of it. Now, we don't understand the conflict that's going on there, but Jesus says, look, I'm not here to... I'm, the inheritance is not my business right now. I just want to tell you, though, be on your guard against all kinds of greed, lusts, desires, desires that rage, because life does not consist in the abundance of possessions. Take that, Sydney. Life does not consist in the abundance of possessions. He tells a parable about a man who made all his decisions about self. God says, you fool, this very night your soul will be required of you, and then who will get what you've prepared for yourself? And Jesus says, 
this is what will happen with anyone who stores up things for themselves, desires that rage, but is not rich towards God. And then Jesus offers an antidote, which we'll come to in a moment, where he just says, have a look at the lilies. Look at flowers. <laughs> they don't labour or spin, but God provides clothing for them. You know, he's going to clothe you. Look down at verse 29 of Luke 12. Do not set your heart on what you eat or drink. Sorry, foodies. Do not worry about it. That's not your concern. The pagan world that you're not flirting with, the pagan world runs after such things and your father already knows you need them. We're not Eastern, we're not hedonists. He knows what you need, but seek in Matthew first his kingdom and all these things. God will take care of them. C.S. Lewis makes the point, as always, eloquently. He says, you know what we need? We need a stronger desire. In fact, we don't have strong enough desires for God and for his kingdom. We have all these um, desires that rage, but they're all for things, lusts, have-tos. But Lewis gave a sermon in 1944 in, at St. Um, Mary the Virgin in London, right in the middle of the war. He said these words, If we consider the unblushing promises of reward and the staggering nature of those rewards promised in the Gospels, it would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. You know, when you look at the life promise, the kingdom of God for those who... the future that God has prepared for those who love him, it's, our desires are too weak. He says we're half-hearted creatures fooling about with drink, and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered up to us. We are like an ignorant child who wants to go making mud pies in the slum, drinking sex and ambition, mud pies in the slum precisely because you can't imagine what is meant by an offer of the holiday at the sea, what God has prepared for those who love him. Lewis says we are far too easily pleased with these desires that rage within. So, what's the antidote? What's the cure? What's the way forward? The clue is in verse 6. Six simple words, starting with a but. But he gives us more grace. Isn't that a beautiful line? But he gives us more grace. I want you to meditate on those words. Maybe even say them to yourself now, perhaps under your breath. Meditate on those words, but God gives us more grace. I want you to memorize those words, but God gives us more grace. I want you to hold on to these words, but God gives us more grace and teach these words to those you love. God showers us with more grace. Grace is a God thing and it's the cure, the antidote leading to something real in your life. Grace is a good thing because it's a God thing. It isn't a human thing. It comes right out of the nature of God and it comes from his love. Grace is when you are loved at rock bottom. Right, humble yourselves before the Lord and he will lift you up. Grace is when you're loved at the rock bottom and then lifted up by the grace and forgiveness and love of God. 
I can't stand how Sydney's media talks about certain celebrities and personalities who fall from grace. In other words, they were riding high, doing everything right and good, and then they did one particular thing wrong and they fell from grace. In other words, they fell from our esteem. It's a travesty of language to talk about falling from grace in such ways. If I can put it this way, you can't fall from grace because grace is being loved at the bottom. You can't fall from the bottom as sinners found out when they met Jesus. There is falling from grace in the book of Hebrews, but it isn't you are riding high and you did the wrong thing and we, you lost our good graces. No, in the book of Hebrews, falling from grace is when you cease to realize that you're at the bottom and holding on to the grace of God. Falling from grace is when you start to say, I'm okay. Grace is when the sinner is loved. The sinner is treated like a saint. When the slave is given a home in the family, when the poor are given the keys to the kingdom, when the wayward son is celebrated with a fattened calf. <laughs> um, we had to celebrate. This son of mine was lost and is found. Grace is, is like oxygen. It's the one thing I really need. And it's the antidote. My wife spent a term as the acting chaplain of an Anglican school in the inner west while the, the chaplain uh, was on long service leave. She got to write in the school bulletin to the parents uh, each, each two, every two weeks. And she wrote on this passage, and I want to read it to you because I think it's profound what, what my wife wrote. Um, she's a wordsmith, <laughs> Dr. Laurel Moffat. Um, she reflected on these. Laurel, by the way, always says to me, make your, your quote short, but I'm going to disobey her to quote her. Does that make sense? Okay, listen to this. It can be uncomfortable to approach the true cause of our divisions, particularly when we find in Scripture that at the very root of them are our own desires that rage within us, the end we desire by any means. Each heart is a throne room from which we rule over fractured kingdoms, the dividing lines of which spill out and mark our own divided world. This is uncomfortable news that your heart is a throne, you rule over it. But it's also news that offers us relief. Just as the diagnosis of an illness may be difficult to receive, it is only upon receiving that diagnosis that true healing can begin. And there is healing and wholeness on offer for all our fractured hearts as well as for our divided world. We are invited, she writes, to throw open the doors of our hearts. Perhaps tonight, those throne rooms within us, with a solemn awareness of the grievous wrongs we have done, with a humble knowledge of our need of God's healing, we are invited not to give up our desires or close down our hearts, but to place them under the rule of the true king of our hearts, the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen? Secondly, the alternative to desires that rage. First, humility. We need to ask God rather than take. Verse 6, he gives us more grace. That is why the scripture says God opposes the proud 
but he shows grace, favour to the humble. James says in verse 2, you desire, you do not have, so you kill, you covet, you quarrel, you fight. And then he says, you do not have because you do not ask God. So you don't have to take and take and take. How about you receive the gifts that God gives you in his time and in his timing. Delight in what he has given you rather than angry with what you don't have and thank him when some of your desires are met. I take it James is saying, pray about your desires. The Eastern people say, rid yourself of desire. The classic Australian hiddenness says, fill yourself with desire. The scriptures say, leave your desires before God. Ask. You don't have because you don't ask God. Ask instead of killing and coveting. Seek first the kingdom and be at peace about unmet desires. James says, you do not have because you do not ask God. In the King James Version, I love this, ye have not because ye ask not. <laughs> you don't have because you don't ask. You don't have because you don't ask. You, know, you want the relationship? You want the relationship to be a certain way. You want him to tend more to your needs or you want him to listen to you more or fight less. These are good desires. You want a job or a promotion or a house or a holiday or you just want things to sort of work out the way you'd like to work them out. Just a little bit of peace. James says, you have not because he asked not. You're not, you're not actually praying about it or asking God. That's the antidote to the desires that rage. Humility. Second, we need to love others. Therefore, verse 3, to ask rightly. When you ask, James says, you do not receive because you ask with wrong motives that you may spend what you get on your pleasures. In other words, you've dressed up your religion um, with some prayers, but there's no heart change. You see, There's a way to be religiously Christian which is really a cover-up for living life as a friend of the world. Namely, to pray, but the prayer is a mere whitewash over the desires that rage within. That's why you have the desires that rage within it. You know it's a problem. You're not seeking a particular solution or trying to gain help. Perhaps, perhaps we need professional help, some of us. But you hear a message like this, but there's no desire. See, your heart changed, so you tack on a prayer. And then you say, but I prayed about it. I prayed about it for three years and nothing happened. I tell you what didn't happen. Perhaps your heart didn't get changed. Because this is where, I guess this is where the throne of your heart, you stay as sitting on the throne of your heart. Um, but you prayed about it. James is offering an alternative here. <laughs> How about love and humility? Love of God and love of others. Not to spend what you get on your pleasures, perhaps, but to give as you've received and to share grace and mercy in others' times of need. And thirdly and finally, in conclusion, um, humility, love, and thirdly, worship. Verses 7 to 10, submit yourself. Look, listen to the verbs. Feel the urging. James goes, please submit yourselves then to God, which, by the way, is not the Australian way. Submit yourselves then to God. <laughs> Resist the devil, like um, the power of evil. Resist it, and the devil will flee from you. I promise he will. 
Come near to God and he will come near to you. Wash your hands, you sinners. Purify your hearts, you double-minded. Feel the urging? Grieve and mourn and wail, James quoting the prophets. Change your, change your laughter to mourning and your joy to gloom, James quoting Jesus. Look at all those verbs. Submit yourselves then to God. Resist. Come near to. Wash your hands. Purify your hearts. Grieve and mourn and wail. All, all of that is a way of saying tonight become a follower of Jesus Christ. That's what it's saying. It's all ways of saying, verse 10, humble yourselves before the Lord and he will lift you up. Walter Casper said this, he said, it is in the humble acknowledgement of the goodness of God where each of us find the humanisation of man. And Tom Wright says these words, and I'll conclude with these words. He says, draw near to God, and he'll draw near to you. Now that's astonishing. Watch the bishop. God is ready and waiting. He longs to establish friendship with you. He longs for it. With, a, with the jealousy, James writes. A friendship deeper, stronger, and more satisfying than you can ever imagine. This too, he writes, will take time, as any friendship worthy of the name will do. But what could be more worthwhile? Let's pray. Father, desires that rage within us, it's a, it's a difficult and a complex reality that we all face. Um, uh, lusts that reside in our hearts, have-tos where we seek to control, idols that we effectively uh, bow down before because we refuse to acknowledge you and your goodness, we refuse to let your love govern who we are and what we do. And so our desires rule. It's a very, very Australian way forward to uh, have a desire and then be validated by it and find identity in it. And uh, yet we want to refuse to do so and rather, Father, find our meaning, our substance, our strength, our hope in, in you. We want to draw near to you and witness you drawing near to us to enjoy the power of your grace, more grace given to us. We are desperate for this, Father, uh, for Christ's sake. I've got some four prayers here that I want to pray, and you might like to say amen at the end of each one. I want to pray for love towards God. Um, I'm going to pray... for God-focused hearts. And then I'm going to pray for peace in our world. And then for Indigenous Australians. I pray for the first Australians as we consider uh, uh, the uh, challenges before Parliament. Let's pray. Father, you've taught us that all our works without love are worth nothing. So send your Holy Spirit and pour into our hearts that most excellent gift of love. Pour into our hearts that most excellent gift of love.
the true bond of peace and of all virtues, without which lives are counted dead before you. Grant this for your only Son, Jesus Christ's sake. Amen. Merciful Lord, you alone can order the unruly wills and affections of human beings. Teach us to love what you command, to desire what you promise, and among the changes and chances of this fleeting world, may our hearts be surely fixed where true joys are to be found. We pray this through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. Let's pray for peace in our world. God of the nations whose sovereign rule brings justice and peace, have mercy on our broken and divided world. And today we especially pray for Western nations with so many fights and quarrels amongst family and friends, in our communities, on social media, in our politics, both here in Australia and in many other Western nations. And we see it perhaps particularly in the United States of America. We pray for that nation as our own. Father, establish your peace in the hearts of all and banish from our hearts the spirit that makes for war, that all races and peoples may learn to live as members of one family and obedience to your laws through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. And finally, let's pray for Indigenous Australians. Creator God, you made from one man all nations and determined where each should live. We bring before you the Indigenous people of Australia. We acknowledge the history that has damaged the relationship between them and later arrivals to this land. Thank you for the steps that have been taken on the journey towards reconciliation. Deepen this process among us. Help us to resist the thought that only the politicians can solve this problem. And yet at the same time, guide our national and community leaders to speak the truth in love and to seek justice with mercy and to care for those who are disadvantaged. Strengthen Indigenous church leaders to shepherd your flock faithfully and strengthen all Indigenous Christians to be salt and light in their communities and in the whole nation. Give Indigenous and non-Indigenous believers grace, more grace, to demonstrate the new family you are making in Christ out of people from every tribe and nation and language and people. We pray this and all these things through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen.